Hey, it's Kevin O'Connor. I've got some big news for you. The Mismatch is hosting its first ever live show in Los Angeles at the El Rey Theater on March 6th. Me and Chris Vernon are going to be there. I'm fired up about it. At the El Rey Theater, there's been performers like Bob Dylan and Kendrick Lamar and Rage Against the Machine and Licky Lee. I'm fired up. Get to be on that stage with my guy, Chris Vernon. We've been together since 2016 doing NBA podcasts, and now we're going to get to meet a lot of you who have listened to our show for so many years. We'll do a Q&A at the end. We might have some special guests, but we're definitely going to be talking basketball. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about it. Tickets are going fast, though, so be sure to head to com to get your tickets now. Doors are going to open at 7 p.m., and the show is going to be starting right at 8 o'clock. Let's go, baby. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Oh, basketball is so very good and it's good to be back. And it is very, very good to be back with my dear friend, Sirit Sohi. Sirit, fresh off of an all-star weekend where she was networking and talking hoops and and uh, just colliding with the greatest minds in, in the sport. Sirit, how you doing? What's up? I'm good. I think I, I saw you rubbing some elbows and, you know, talking your talk. Also, the folks was a little different today. It was almost like there was a helium, like you just, you just like uh, breathe into a helium balloon there and then said folks. A little higher pitched. I yeah. didn't mean to, I, you know. No, you're just, it's great. Are you, are you just a little, little upbeat today? Are you a little nervous? Sun shining, you know, yeah. I don't know. It was kind of, uh, yeah, maybe a little different energy, I guess, you know, we, we were talking about. <laughs> some whimsy, some whimsical. Yeah, a little bit, a uh, little camp in there. Yeah, we were, we got to hang out. Uh, yes, yeah, Sirit and I were joking about, we give each other a ton of shit. We wrote an article where we basically gave each other epic nuclear amounts of shit, but we don't get to hang out in person. So it was cool to get to see her and to see our dear friend, Michael Pina and uh, folks like Dave Dufour and Katie Heindel. It was a fun weekend. What was your big takeaway? What was your favorite thing from from All Star, Sirit? Or did you, did you have a good time, period? I had, I had a great time. Um, my favorite thing was actually just hanging out with everybody, you know, I think us, us sizing each other up was really fun. That first, like, I feel like that first day we're kind of just like, okay, like what's, what's this dynamic going to be like in real life? Yeah. Uh, there was a great, I'm going to repost it actually for anybody who didn't see it. Uh, yeah. I hit, I hit Kyle with just like one of 
the most incredible and specific one-liners for the for the listeners of this show. Anybody who knows his basketball sensibilities will really appreciate it. Um, and he tried to he tried to cover uh, cover the camera lens when when I did it, and I think it only made it funnier. Yeah, because I'm known for my Carl Anthony Towns, you know, um, you know, affection. That's something. No, I mean, I think he kind of overworked. You you were really excited about this pun. Um, this this joke, this uh, look with the Carl Anthony Towns drug in and dragged in, and uh, I was, it's good. I was just like airball, airball. You know, it wasn't, you airball. it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel organic. Um, but yeah, you repost that and see what kind of reaction you you get. Today we're gonna kick off um, a series. We like our series series is here on the answer. Mm-hmm. We like we like to open up, uh, you know, sort of connected things and, and just kind of work through them as best we can. But this is going to be about award season. Um, we're going to be just going award by award, talking about like, you know, obviously discussing discussing who should win, but, you know, kind of diving into the nature of the awards, where they started, how they started, how they got their names. Do they make sense? Kind of pulling apart the narratives around them. So we're going to be kicking that off today with the six man of the year award. Before we get going, though, I wanted to start with a quick segment called uh, Am I a Sicko? We can put the Logan Roy clip there. Are you a sicko? So the other night we were, we were going out to dinner, my wife, my son, uh, and a couple friends. And before we go to this one particular place, I won't say the name of it, um, it's it's a place where you often, it's it's popular enough that you need to make a reservation. So I make, but you, you can usually get in if you do it like a couple hours before. So I make a reservation. But there are going to be four adults and my son, who sits in a high chair. Typically, in the past, I didn't say, I didn't include him because the high chair doesn't really kind of count in the seating count. You know, you, he just kind of latches onto the table. So the other day we went and this uh, this particular restaurant owner is known for being kind of uppity and maybe a, runs a little hot and maybe kind of has a little bit of a legendary reputation around town as being... Um, prickly at times i'll say uh so we get there i had made the reservation for two people this is a two-parter so i make the reservation for two people we show up we're sitting there at the uh we we are at the the hostess stand which happens to be run by the owner and when we get there she sees that it's not just two people it's two people and a child and she basically uh proceeds to kind of lecture me in a way that's like pretty aggressive like not like Hey, in the future, it was just like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And, and, and we were like the only people standing down there. So I'm just standing there taking this abuse. And I'm just like, this is a little over the top. So I'm talking about it as we get to the table. And Megan is agreeing with me. Megan, my wife, as some people know. Now everybody knows if you listen to this. So we're sitting at the table. Big wife guy. Big wife guy. So we're sitting there at the table. And, and I'm, I'm making a note of this. So a couple weeks, maybe a week, a couple weeks later, um, I'm sitting at the computer. And I'm getting ready to make the reservation again with some friends. And I'm like, four people, four adults. I'm like, I went through this spiel uh, this time. Should I go ahead and do the five? I was like, no, I'm going to do four again just because of the way that this woman overreacted last time. So <laughs> on purpose. You know, it's very on brand for you to just assume a woman is overreacting. Let's oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I told you what you did. Don't uh, anyway. This is uh, we'll un- unpack more of that later. I'm sure. So we will. We get there and she sees again, and I don't know if she remembers me, but she but she starts basically in on the exact same lecture in a way that's pretty rude. 
And as we're walking to the table, Megan was like, Do you think like, she remembered you? you? I don't know. That's the funny part. But she, she did the exact same spiel. And we're just sitting there and Megan was like, you didn't, and I didn't say anything. And I was, I kept it to myself what I had done. And uh, so after the meal's over, we're walking out and I went, I said to Megan, I was like, you remember when she lectured us again? I was like, I intentionally did four again, just, just to needle this lady for being such, such a jerk. And Megan was like, do not include me in in your, <laughs> do not include me in in these kinds of scams or schemes or needlings in the future. I don't want to be a part of it. It, w- it wasn't like real, real mad, but I was just going to ask you, is that sicko behavior? Should I not have done that? Do you think she deserved it? Am I, what, what do you think about that move on my part? Was the restaurant busy? I mean, it's not, there weren't like a ton of people standing in the waiting area. It's a huge restaurant. That's another thing. Okay. It's like, there's a lot of seating in this place. It's like a multiplex sized restaurant. And, uh, it just, uh, I felt like, I felt like she needed to, I just felt like it, it was a, an amusing experience for me to to get that, that reaction out of her again. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a sickle or not. I don't think I am. I think I'm just a, a, a shit stir. And can you, can you give us your best sort of rendition of a lecture? Uh, I told you she started, she started in with like, why would you do that? If there were three people, why would you put two? She was like, we do this on purpose, which is, it's nonsense. She was like, this is a, this is this many seats. And I was like, even if it's a two person table, the, t- the high chair is going to be sitting to the side. So it was just, it was stupid. I don't know. Sarah. I, I didn't, I don't even know if that was a good story, but <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like it does. It doesn't make, it doesn't rise to sicko level, but at the same time, I do find myself thinking, you know, in a situation where there's a reservation, you're making a reservation I think, you know, allowing the restaurant time to prepare, like letting them know what is going on is like probably the right move. Um, I imagine maybe if she handled it differently, you would have. But yeah, at the same exactly. time, it just, you know, it's, it's like interesting to me that you were like, oh, I really got a rise out of this woman. Let me do it again. It just l- lends itself to a pr- pattern of behavior that maybe you should uh, think about. You think the bigger the bigger person in that situation would have just absorbed the, the frustration, or I should have been more empathetic about why she was. I don't. I don't. I think well, it doesn't necessarily absorb the frustration. You could have. You could have been a little. You know. You, you could have given back some of what she was throwing at you. I didn't perhaps. feel like being confrontational, so I was just like mm-hmm. my revenge. So you were against passive her. aggressive instead. Yeah, I was like uh, Tito Fuente in the in the Simpsons. I wasn't going to get back at her. I was just going to play the Congos. This is my revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted a different type of revenge. Anyway, speaking yeah. of, uh, did did you feel like quietly satisfied? Oh yes, oh yes. When she started lecturing me again, I just like started smiling. I was like, yeah, this is what you get for being such a jerk. I was like, you get to experience this again. I, I'm all for like. Uh, I understand the service industry is frustrating. I've worked in it. I've been on customer service side of it. Um, I just, I don't know. Let me let me know if on Twitter if you guys think I'm a sicko or an asshole. But that's what happened. Let's talk about the Six Man of the Year award. Um, Sarah, you like did a lot of like diving into the history of this award. Can you just kind of get the ball rolling on how this started? What what was the thinking behind the award? Who won the first one? Get us get the ball rolling with where this award came from because it wasn't one of the. It, it didn't start immediately with the league, right? It wasn't a league that, it wasn't a, an award intuitively where they were like, this obviously is a thing that we need to figure out from day one. Yeah, I think this was, this was a role that was kind of, you know, popularized slash mythologized by John Havlicek, who the award is actually, was named after uh, this uh, 
this past December when the NBA decided that it was going to rename all of its awards suddenly uh, because it didn't actually exist when he was playing. He was a member of the 60s Boston Celtics and he was their sixth man, Uh, probably most famous for, you know, his nickname was Hondo and uh, for that like last minute steal that I think is like kind of one of one of the uh, the most sort of memorialized black and white highlights from from back in that time. So the NBA, I guess, kind of honored him since he never actually won that award, but he kind of was the guy that started it in a sense or at least was the most successful to do it. Uh, but I, I think I think uh, the role that he played kind of gets to the spirit of of the award or what it was intended to be and that has changed and and it's actually i don't know it's like it's taken a lot of different turns and we'll get into all of that but uh he was a guy that was on a stack championship team so they needed to balance things out and took on a bit of a sacrificial role and all this celtics lore actually it's a part of our orientation at the ringer whenever we come on we have right. to learn about all this so Cel- i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's no, actually you're right. there's a bunch of other guys but <laughs> but we just decided to go with the celtics uh i was actually thinking it's like going to be a pretty like celtics history heavy start of this because uh, like Kevin McHale was and uh, won it twice. Uh, Bill Walton, when he was a member of the Celtics, won it twice. Uh, but before we get to that, the award was uh, the, the first year of the six man award was in 1982, 19, 1983. And it went to Bobby Jones and learning about Bobby Jones was fascinating to me. This is amusing to me to hear. It. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I don't remember this in real time, but I just enjoy history. See it. So let's let's hear it. Oh, you don't remember it in real time? Yeah, nice try. <laughs> nice try. But, I mean, 1982, 1983, those those were like, you know, th- that was like your prime, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, before I was born. Siret's been trying to boomerize me, everybody. I'm I'm being I'm being boomerized and and targeted and unfairly treated. Uh I'm only 8 years 8 years older than her. Go, continue with your thing. God, just go. <laughs> Uh, he was nicknamed the Secretary of Defense, which just badass, by the way. Uh, but he was like shot blocker, off ball cutter, hustle type of player for for the Sixers. And when he got there, uh, Billy Cunningham, who was also a former six man, never never memorialized, but uh, played that role. He asked he asked uh, Bobby Jones to come off the bench, and you know he thought that it was going to be a lot more of an argument than it was. And within thirty seconds, he was like, "Okay, cool." Um, he was just one of those guys that never really cared too much about what his role was. Never really cared about you know starting. Never cared about like some of the stuff that you people kind of people kind of get caught up. And like, and there's, there's a lot of fun Bobby Jones stories out there, but he was like a very serious man, but also someone who, and he's still alive actually, I shouldn't say, say, shouldn't say was, he's a very serious guy. And like, also just like, didn't engage in any sort of vices or anything like that. He's not like me and Kyle. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't curse. <laughs> I don't know what um, you're talking about. You know? Uh and like, there's, there's so many good coach, uh, quotes about him. I'm just going to rattle some of them off. Larry Brown says, watching Bobby Jones on the basketball court is like watching an honest man in a liar's poker game. One of the things that I thought was fascinating reading about him, if I have to play defense by holding on, that's when I quit. If I have to use an elbow to get position, then I'm going to have to settle for another position. And if I foul or if the official makes a mistake, there's no use screaming about it. It won't change things or make me happier. Like the, the, the stoicism in this man, like 
My God, he should be like making YouTube videos. It's emotionally mature though, too. He should be like uh, consulting or uh, like counseling Jason Tatum after getting like tossed out. T Tatum, hot temper. Need to bring it down. You know what I mean? Uh, it doesn't seem like one of those guys that would pull himself out of the game with like his mental state, right? He just kind of is like, if he just takes a lot of accountability, it seems like for 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 his his own performance there. Yeah, and that's actually a good point because one of the things that we'll get into is like the difficulty of adjusting to the six man role, especially if you've been a starter in the past. And one thing that his teammates would note about Jones was that when he was sitting on the bench, it was like he was completely disengaged from the action. That's what it looked like, at least. And then his name would get called and it was like a flip switch and he was just ready to go. Like he didn't really need and we've like we've gotten some concern trolling from Russell Westbrook when he first had to come off the bench and he was like, ah, oh, my hamstring. And like there was like and there is some genuine stuff there, too. Like we'll, we'll get into it of like if you're used to the starting role for most of your life, then you do have to sort of find a way to acclimate yourself to that role. Right. Uh, but for him, it was just automatic. It's hard to come in cold. I would imagine yeah. you probably you probably barely played. I'd imagine being so, you know. <laughs> of lesser talent. But I would say that like, it is, it's a hard life. Like I know when I was like in my earlier varsity kind of days that like, I used to have to come in cold and one of my expectations, I was like a shooter. And my thing was like, you come in cold and you shoot cold. And if you, you know, if you go two for four, you get to stay in for a few more minutes. And if not, it's a, it's a hard life. I mean, I will say, I, but you know, some players need to I'm fascinated too by like this idea Wait, so, of like. So you were a sixth man. No, I was probably more like the eighth man on like, mm. uh, and on our good team, I like barely played. But um, yeah, I would say that like, it's an interesting thing that like the, the ego that's attached to like starting a game, you know what I mean? That like mm -hmm. starting is almost seen as like a ranking, you know, whereas like in basketball has some sort of like, has some interesting ego and you and I've talked about this like ego things that are wrapped up in a team game that are kind of difficult to sort of like separate and parse where you know really a basketball game is like a thing that flows I was comparing it to like before we came on the pod I was comparing it to like the way like a song unfolds at times it's like you know maybe the guitar part is the best part but it needs to come in at this one spot for it to like for the the cohesive sequence of things here to to work right, I, I'm not saying there it's an exact you know one to one metaphor there, but I just find that interesting that like how much ego is tied up in, in that you know that like that it's a defeat if you don't start you know what do you think? I love I love that metaphor. I love the idea of you know there are certain notes that are just like way too strong to come in at the start, and they might actually like be dissonant with. Uh, you know, with the way that you're starting the song, like yeah. you just can't put everything together, but like you might need, you might need a little bit of a jump at a certain point or like a tone shift, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Like there, and that's, that's kind of in the spirit of the award as well, or the spirit of the role. And there are a lot of different six man roles. Let's get to that. Yeah. yeah. I'll say continue the timeline though. Let's like, just can we, we'll bounce to a couple of the other ones. Like the, the first 15 years, I feel like though, there was kind of a, an interesting pattern among the six man, the guys that won the six man award. Yeah. A lot of hall of famers. Uh, we had Kevin McHale, we had Bill, Bill Walton, uh, Kukoc. But one thing that you noted was that a lot of it was big men, power forwards that were more on the scoring side of, side of things, right? And that was the case with Jones too. Like, uh, I'd say like 
that the year that he won, like the inaugural year of the award, uh, he was backing up Moses Malone and the Sixers won a championship that year. Uh, and I think it speaks to where the league was a lot more big man oriented, uh, probably a lot more need for rebounding, uh, just having that presence down there. And then we kind of saw it shift quite a bit. And I would say, I would say there were a couple of players that started to show you how it was shifting. Del Curry won the award in 94, kind of playing what I would call like the Kyle Mann role, just coming off, coming off the bench. God damn right. And trying to hit hit jumpers. Yeah. And that's another thing that's interesting about it. I think there is a pressure that comes with being the sixth man, especially if then you get credit for being the guy that runs the bench unit is not only do you have to come in cold, but you also kind of, can sometimes put pressure on yourself to make sure that you're making something happen. Like you're watching the game. And I think there is something to like, you know, all my years as a bench warmer, you get to see, you get to see what the action is. You get a little bit of a preview without having to be in it. Right. It's like, it's like you're almost reading a book. Right. And there is a sort of sense of like, okay, now I have to come in. And if the team's not doing that well, I got to, I got to shift the energy. And that can, that can be a lot of pressure to put on yourself. It's just like one player, right? I feel like the players that tend towards that tend to be in this position, it, it honestly often lines up with their nature in a way where I don't even know if they have to be, if they're, you know what I mean? Cause a lot of times, and we'll see this as we see the people who won the award over the years. I, I feel like, um, it, very often is a player who has like a certain appetite. It's off if it's often an offensive appetite mm-hmm. that that maybe isn't in moderation in a way that's like efficient and and like helpful. These are guys that, that whether or not this is correct for who should win the award, but I I don't know. I, I think that because a lot of times they'll come in and be in for they'll overlap with the first four before they run the second unit, right? Mm-hmm. So you know you come in and you got like. And and it's it's unique to every case, right? That like maybe it's somebody who's not efficient enough to carry a full offensive load on their own, or they're not. Mikhail ended up being a starter, as we know. He was on one of the best like front courts of all time. But like, and then you got a situation with like Bill Walton, who kind of overlaps with somebody else who's a contender this year, who's another Boston Celtic. But um, Walton at that point was way, way overqualified talent-wise to be in that situation, but his body just couldn't do it anymore. He could come in in these little spurts um, and and perform in like a line with like some like the Larry Bird, Bill Walton. I've said this before. I said it on Bill's show. I, like the Larry Bird, Bill Walton highlights are like un, unreal. Like, I don't know if you've seen those. Um, but yeah, the, the offensive thing continued on. Like Detlef Shrimp with, uh, with Seattle and then like Clifford Robinson with Portland. Tony Kukoc with the Bulls, Danny Manning. These are all guys who were like in that 6'9", 6'10 range who were like just offensive spark plugs that on and and mm-hmm. I feel like they could their variants could like swing towards on this one night they might be the best player on the floor because they're feeling it but you don't necessarily want to rely on them to be that guy on a nightly basis. I kind of feel like but I think that you were right about like the size of the league being a precedent it was was something that I hadn't thought about that that might be why it sort of like drifted towards guards over the years and why it was big guys early on. Yeah, the the league itself became more perimeter oriented, but I think it's interesting, like you use the word spark plug and that's the word that I would use for the modern sort of iteration of the six man, um, the Jamal Crawfords, Lou Williams. And like we saw it, I think with, with Curry, of course, but John Starks, who won in 1997, is very much of like that current tradition, like that... In the 90s, we sort of started to see that shift 
of like what, like I think you said it, of like what they kind of used to call off guards, which is a term that, you know, we don't really hear that as much anymore. Um, but yeah, someone who comes into the game and it kind of goes in two different directions. Like it can be a player who just happens to be on a stacked team who is better off running the bench unit and would be a starter in a different situation or is building themselves into a starter. Maybe there's a defensive deficiency there. I think like, you know, Tyler Hero last year is a great example of that. I think uh, James Harden and, you know, in the OKC days is a great example of that. Rookie Ben Gordon, another great example of that. Rookie Ben Gordon is also the only guy to be uh, a rookie and win six man of the year as well. Uh, but like, they're not necessarily players that I would immediately consider as selfish or like that they wouldn't be able to play in a particular role. Uh, but there's also the other end of it where like, I just feel like this is where the six man of the year award becomes its silliest and actually like completely gets away from what it was meant to be, which is like when you had guys like Lou Williams winning it all the time, um, like the Gunners, right? Like the Jordan Clarkson types, uh, the J.R. Smiths of the world, where it's like you come off the bench because you play like a star without necessarily being a star, but you haven't necessarily developed like the the role playing characteristics that are required to actually like coalesce and and, and coexist around stars. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I it's like your your. I always say I used to describe Malik Monk like this. I was like, and players, I thought who I thought could end up being, he's this breed of player. He's turned, he's kind of, he's evolved a little bit. Like, I don't know when he was in college, I was like, I was like, I kind of feel like this is who he is, but his self-awareness has been better in the NBA than I thought it would be. But it's often guys who have this wild ability to, it, it can spike really high. Like uh, that's what I was talking, like that's kind of what mm-hmm. I was describing about. Yeah. It can spike really high. Like you might, I, I don't even know what J.R. Smith's career high is, but I imagine it's super high. You know, we saw a, a Jamal Crawford 50 piece, I think. When, didn't he, he got a 50 piece when he was like almost out of the league, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are those guys who, well, I was going to say the way I would always describe Monk was like, I feel like he's nuanced that you are going to want to stack on top of like implied offense, which is like, this is what we do. This is our philosophy of how we get, how we're going to try to create offense. And then this person is going to come in and his variance is just going to be extra headache. But it's it's the kind of, if he's on, we can, we can move him and kind of focus on him for on a nightly basis depending on how things are going. But if he's off, we're not going to be penalized by that variance. You know what I mean? And those guys, what's interesting too is that like, and I, if you look over the years, that's the Clarksons, the Lou Williams, the Jamal Crawfords, the JRs, guys like that. Um, but if you go, and Barbosa, I kind of feel like was like the first one to win the award that was of that that mm-hmm. DNA, you know? Like, um Barbosa could just get going and he was sort of that lather score thing that I always say but um he's also a great example because he was such an off kilter and quick basketball player that there were certain situations where if your offense just wasn't doing what you needed it to do on a particular night if you just threw him out there the defense would be like oh we have not accounted for this like everything that <laughs> exactly we were doing that's what I mean was not in the style of what <laughs> of what he's able to do yeah, it's a guy you don't want to lean on. There's a guy on Kentucky squad this year that's like that, and his name's Antonio Reeves. It's like you don't want to lean on him, but when he's rolling, it's a major pain in the ass. Like for what mm-hmm. you just said, it's like, and and Brazilian Blur too, one of my favorite all time 
nicknames. I, I don't know. It just it yeah. just has a nice. I'm a huge nice... huge Barbosa fan. Yeah, yeah. Love he just Barbosa. Had, had that. He was fun with the Warriors too. He just had that yeah. smiley kind of yeah. like I'm really fast. Yeah, good just vibes. a very good vibe. Very good yeah. vibe from Barbosa. The NBA season is heating up, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sports book, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, it's super easy to use. Then you get to bet on everything from the money line to point scores and threes drained. This is a really topsy-turvy, volatile shakeup in the standings time in the NBA. It's going to be fun to bet on it. A lot of opportunities to make some money. So don't miss the chance to get your no sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash RingerMBA. That's FanDuel.com slash ringer nba to learn more and if you're in massachusetts get ready because fanduel is coming soon make sure you check out fanduel.com slash mass and take advantage of their great pre-live offers make every moment more with fanduel an official sports betting partner of the nba 21 and up and present in select states first online real money wager only ten dollar deposit required refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, 1-800-327-5050, or visit www.mahelpline.org slash problemgambling. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Something else interesting about these guys, though, is that like a lot of them teeter on the edge of, and I think you nailed it, about like not evolving in the direction that they need to to become a part of that primary philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, a JR can exist in a construct with with LeBron because LeBron is like so over there is no like confusion when you play with LeBron. Like, you know, it's like LeBron LeBron could like contain JR's JRness in a way that was like doable, you know. Um but and wasn't going to kill you. But a lot of these guys like teeter on the edge of that like they're talented enough to be a superstar. I always joked with you that I thought that the the trophy for this award should have been like Jamal Crawford with a thought bubble that says I'm better than Chris Paul. Like I, I I felt like if you gave a lot of these guys a lie detector test over the years, you'd be like, are you better than the superstar player on this team? And they'd be like, yeah, I'm better than them. Like I just feel like that energy is kind of what the six man award became. But I don't mm-hmm. think that it necessarily is. 
I think as we were talking about this, I'm not trying to labor this too hard, but like and as you and I were talking about this, I was just thinking, man, what a fucking stupid award. Like when you think about it through that that lens where you're like, well, this guy's just being rewarded because he thinks he's, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? Like he thinks he's a primary option, but, and we're rewarding that. But do you think that like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, are we, is that missing the point and how? I think I had moments where I felt like that too. First of all, I'll just say that the NBA like complete, like they immortalized the current gunning nature of the award <laughs> with the new trophy. It is a player shooting an off balance jump shot. And I, I the NBA love- says <laughs> it is meant to, it, it is meant to signify a symbolic boost provided by the player to his team. Guys, I love y'all. This is just a little lazy. It's just a little lazy. Oh, yes. We needed a second draft on that one. Take the piss out, Sirit. Let him have it. Um, no, just, I think it's, it's just it's just not great, guys. That's one the of those did no one raise did no one raise like, their no. hand things. That's like, my yeah, thing. Yeah, no off balance jump shot, guys. Come on, come on. Uh, um, so uh, I mean, yeah. let's say so a that, bad that's where shot we're at with the award right now. But I th- I think this year, and I think like overall, right? Like I'm I'm with you in terms of in terms of what you're saying, but at the same time, there is also a rich history with this award of players who genuinely were sa- were self-sacrificial. And we haven't even talked about Manu Ginobili. I think that's where we can get into some of the... I'm like, always just, down. Let's go. We can always talk about Manu Ginobili. With the we approval rating Ginobili, all time. Yeah. Right? You, talk to, yeah. you talk to... If somebody... If, if a basketball fan said to me, if a self-proclaimed basketball fan said to me, eh, Manu Ginobili, I'd be like, okay, well, you're not a basketball fan then, basically. Yeah. I just feel like he, he appeals to the most central thing about the sport that just feels right, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. And, but, like, I think that... Ginobili, he he is a prime example. There are a few others. I think that mm-hmm. the award should be named after Ginobili. I personally do. I don't know that he's named. I don't know if there's another award. I'd, I'd have to revisit. There's not another one named after Ginobili, is there? I don't Mm-mm, think so. I don't think so. A, you get some of the international thing in there, which really I think mm-hmm. is key to the sport now. Like, uh, in a, well, not now. It has been for quite some time. And and he just embodies the award. Not that Havlicek doesn't, but Havlicek started way more, if I'm not mistaken. And I just think that he hits on what we were talking about. Like, okay, we've got this, like, we've got this sick. And I think some of this is like the maturity of kind of accepting what this, what is best for the team and what really mm-hmm. the selflessness of the sport, like the philosophy of, of why basketball can be so beautiful and things like that, taking it back to the music thing. I know this, like when I was growing up as a musician, like playing in bands, playing in things. Like if I if I was excited about playing on a song or something like that, like it was it, the restraint is a powerful thing. Like to know when restraint is appropriate and when it serves the group. You know what I mean? Because sometimes when you have something that you want to play and you're excited about, it, you don't want to wait. It's like so. Like for Ginobili and, and players like him to take the input, or Bobby Jones to take that input of like, hey, we need you to enter the frame at this time because it's going to be more impactful than if you're in frame one for us. Um, I, I just think it, Ginobili embodies the spirit of what we're talking mm-hmm. about. There's a couple others that we'll get to, but um, I, th- I think he he is sort of the central thesis, if you wanted to point to one person. You know what it's kind of like? What? It's like in Gone Girl when <laughs> all of a sudden... Rosamund Pike is driving in her car and we hear, we hear her speaking and we're like, oh, 
this movie is completely different than what we actually thought it was going to be. Yes. Like that's, yes. That, that's what it's like. And I think, I think that's what it's like when like to, to have a player like Ginobili come off the bench for you, you know, you're like, it just completely flips the action. Uh, but Ginobili completely, like he, he is the guy who represents what, the holy grail of this award should essentially be right. Like he is actually better than the star who started over him with yeah. all due respect to Tony Parker, just factually correct. Um, was all NBA the season that he won six man of the year and was truly good enough to be a starter. You know, it was like, there's no question about it. And there's like this, kind of irony about who the best six men end up being. It's like always the player who has the confidence to know that they deserve to be a starter um, ends up, I think being the most effective six man is like the, like the ego thing doesn't play into it as much when you have a natural sense of confidence and yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's like a, it's a certain skill level too, right? To have an actual starting player caliber go against a bench unit is just like, you can't, you can't really account for their, you know what that gives you. I mean, you can, you can now, you can, you can, now, but you can, you can we, we have that. We have now. those. Numbers. Yeah, we have those. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> no, I was going to, I brought up one to you that, yeah, I want to boomerize myself basketball wise here, but uh, mm -hmm. there was a guy named, you know, you remember Morris Peterson, Peterson playing for the Raptors though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Morris Peterson played on uh, a, a national title team at Michigan state in 2000. And they actually beat the floor. They beat a Florida team that actually had Mike Miller, who actually would go on to win the six man in 0506. Uh, it also had Udonis Haslam. Uh, that was a really fun Billy Donovan team. Just wanted to throw that in there, a little college basketball history for you. But Morris Peterson was their leading scorer and he came off the bench. He was their six man. Um, it's fascinating to go see like the percentage of like how often they started over the course of the, of the year. Do you do you kind of have a limit on like how much you think it's it's okay for a person to start and still win the award or what do you think about that? Well, the NBA's rules are essentially that you have to uh come off the bench more games than you start. So it's like slightly above 50% is basically what they're saying. Um and I think that's fine, especially in the modern era where there are so many injuries and load management where it's kind of natural for a player to toggle between both roles. I think it's also like let's let's get into the modern the modern day and like the the current six man of the year race. Uh we'll start with Norman Powell because I feel like it's a natural transition to your from your point. Like we got to mention Andre Iguodala too. We got to throw him in there. A guy who like was still a good player that he was confront he well, not confronted but like he had a, a talk with Steve Kerr about what was best for the Warriors and and came off the bench. I, I just wanted yeah. to, we got, no, just good, for that. That's a good one. It's like that. He's actually the perfect example of a player who thrives playing that role. Like he, he wrote a book called the six man after kind of struggling to accept that role in, in the beginning, by the way, a great book. Have you read it? No, I haven't. You really should. It's like, I mean, it's Andre Iguodala. He's so damn smart. Uh, the way that he sees the league, uh, the way that he sees it from like the player's perspective and just like analyzing different things that they go through, trades. Um, he talks about coaches like basically lying to his face, um, you know, what it's like to, what, I, his man, there was one chapter, this is like total digression, but there was one chapter on him going back to Philly and the Philly fans booed him because um, the media put out that he was the one who wanted out. And it was back in a time where like, you know, Andre, like Iguodala did not have like a media connection to be able to refute that somehow. It came from the team and he just like, he got booed. And at the end of the game, he just like shared this sort of like stare with Doug Collins. And like, it was like Doug Collins, like didn't even want to look at him. Cause it was like, he knew what he did, uh -huh. you know, like, yeah. 
Ouch. And there's a lot of stuff like that in the book. It's a really interesting book. And it like it completely changed the way that I see the NBA in general. But that was a great digression. I, I need to read that book. Like it's interesting that they would lie. Anyone would try to lie to someone as smart as, as Andre Iguodala. But are they, you know, that speaks to what we're talking about, that the good intention of like, hey, man, like that he trusted Kerr, mm-hmm. that Kerr's was thinking about the team in a way and not like trying to like soften Andre's ego. It was just like, no, for this like assortment of players, you could really, mm-hmm. you know, water the plants that go yeah. dry typically in this in this stage of the game for us. Yeah. Um, and also in, in fairness to players who don't want to do it, like I think an experience like that is why you start not wanting to do it. It's like pretty hard to be consistently team oriented when like shit like that happens to you, you know? Sure. Sure. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um Br- bridging it to the modern thing though, I I disrupted you there. Yeah. He's a great example, though, of like a player who is a great playmaker, a little bit off kilter, too, in his own way. It was like was never really meant to be like the the second scorer, the first scorer, like the guy that they tried to that he was supposed to be coming into the league. He was like an, a utility guy, a playmaker. Um, and that that's that's the one type of player that I feel like gets short shrift in this award, too. Like, I think part of my beef with the six man of the year voting has been like, it so consistently goes to the gunner. And I'm not saying the gunner doesn't have their place, especially on like, you know, often like teams that don't have enough offense, like you need scoring. But at the same time, like, like my biggest thing with it has always been like, I was, as you know, I was just like a died in the wolves bulls fan growing up and Todd Gibson never winning that award just pissed me off to no end. Like this man came off the bench for Carlos Boozer, who could not defend any pick and rolls ever. <laughs> I just picture just little Siri getting mad about this. Oh my God, I would get I would get so pissed. And the team was <laughs> obviously better when Gibson was in the game. It was so clear, but Booz was like the second star and like you had to start him if he was healthy. But like when he wasn't healthy, which was often, Gibson would be the starter and Gibson would come in. He would ha- He was more athletic. He fit the uh, like the defensive identity of the team. He was good enough scoring wise. Like he wasn't Boozer, but like he had a decent mid range game and he was athletic and he played well off of Rose and it worked a lot better and he worked really well off of Noah too. And in, instead, it would it would go to it would go to Jamal Crawford, who it would by the way, fine. <laughs> like that's that's fine. But like, does it always have to go to Jamal Crawford? Can it sometimes go to Todd Gibson? You know. I feel like there are Bulls fans out there that are like in their cars, just like yeah. holding their hands up. They're like, "Yes, Lord, like, yes, Lord." That was an epic. I I don't think I've ever seen your energy level get that high over like that was incredible. Um, anyway, if we go back and we look, we had a run where it was like thirteen Jr., fourteen Jamal, fifteen Lou, sixteen Jamal. You know, Eric Gordon, Lou, Lou Clarkson. It just I feel like Harold is probably the closest. Um, we just we just had a mega run here, and I guess we're in a situation where we, as a group of individuals who watch this sport and talk about this sport, and we attempt to get it right. And I kind of feel like this is the this is the I'm I'm doing the like uh, the emoji for the I don't even how do you describe this? It's like that Italian like, it's like that a, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> it's that Italian thing, je ne sais quoi. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Kyle. Uh, no, I mean it's that something something. It's that crux of the award that we want to get the spirit of it right. And I think that's what we're setting out to do here. And I think we have a chance to get it right, which segues to the modern candidates for this award. Do you see any kind of historical, any kind of potential to repeat past errors? And do you see any potential to correct 
and make the right choice here because I think we've established the best version of this. I'm not trying to downplay. We we said we're not trying to downplay mm-hmm. the offense, but that's one side of it that I feel like we got a little obsessed with. You made an yeah. incredible uh, argument for Taj Gibson a little bit here. Do you think that we have a chance to get it right this time around? Um, yeah. What do you? Uh, let's just talk about the mo- the the today's candidates because this award's yeah. going to be getting handed out. Soon. So we were on a one way crash course to getting this completely wrong just two weeks ago when Russell Westbrook was a Laker and was the odds-on favorite to win sixth man of the year, despite the fact that the team was still better with him on the bench. And he basically went to the bench kicking and screaming and like <laughs> publicly not hidden, antagonizing his coach and kind of making it sound like he was, he would put him like, like his coach would put him in, in a position to hurt himself before eventually going to the bench. And what was clearly a move motivated by the fact that if he didn't, things were going to go very poorly for his career from that point, moving forward, he is now a member of the Clippers. Um, we will not get into any of that. There are many podcasts that have gotten into that, but he is, uh, he started, Um, and we'll see how that goes, but he will probably be a starter from here on. Um, and he is no longer the odds on favorite. Uh, in fact, his odds have dropped to like, like, I think like 3000 or something. Um, anyway, anytime your, uh, your six man of the year candidate is someone that the team also is perpetually trying to trade and is a candidate in the buyout market. I don't know. We might be doing something wrong there that we have avoided that reality and it has given way to a bunch of really great candidates for the award this year. I'm happy about it. Yeah. What's that? I said I'm happy about it. I did just that what you were describing it just makes your head hurt. It's like we really really I don't I don't know that he would have won. A lot of what you were saying there I guess was driven by Scuttlebutt and by like the odds, which the odds are usually driven by Intel. Um typically. I think he was going to win like every oh man, every time he checked into the game, ESPN like couldn't have any like no matter who the commentator was and Russell Westbrook taking a role off the bench for this team. Like, guys, come on, cut it out. Cut it out. We know what, like, can you include the context of what, what like led to all of that happening? There was, and I agree with this. Like, I know it went a little far. The meanness went a little far with Russ. I, I agree. The but meanness also, absolutely went too far. Yeah. It did. But like, also, so did his stubbornness. It did. And he's also making like $45 million a year. And, and like, we are talking about a game. I know that like a person's feelings and their about their very public facing job, it's kind of inextricable. Like I, I understand all that, but I, I think yeah, to act like he was, to act like he was like willingly like jumping into this role, which I do, I do think it's 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 inevitable that they're going to be narrative forces that surround every award. I got in a big conversation with a guy yesterday about the gym, at the gym about about like the MVP award. That stuff, it, it's just going to happen. So before we move on to the modern candidates for this award which we are going to talk about here in just a moment. We're going to take a break. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. 
That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. So the first player here that we're going to talk about here is, uh, and we'll rattle through these, but like Malcolm Brogdon, I think kind of more fits the... He's not exactly the Bill Walton thing, but I mean, it's not terribly far off. He's a player who absolutely was like starter quality. He had his role sort of, if you look at his basketball reference over his the course of his seasons, and he came into the league as a guy who'd been flagged for like medical issues, potential um, medical issues. And that has kind of played out. He's had injury troubles, but he's someone who is sort of, he fits that mold of like, He's not like somebody who has this wild offensive output that is like more suited to be in an inefficient uh, a lineup that's you're more willing to like tolerate inefficiency, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of what we're talking about with some of these like flamethrower score type guys. Brogdon is a very very qualified starter who is serving in a role uh that Boston saw that they needed in the finals last year. This was a team that was we knew they were wobbly with the ball in certain situations. We knew that they needed more playmaking. We knew that they could probably use one more perimeter defender. Um, Brogdon is doing well in that role. I find it kind of interesting that the on-off numbers are a little noisy with him. Um, I think they were like negative 7.1 with him on, um, but I, I don't feel like that totally matches my eye test. Um can I ask you what you've thought about Brogdon this season so far? How do you like? Do you think that he's fit into this role? Do you think you think he should win? I think it's kind of the well, we'll, we'll save our we'll save our picks for the end. But he's kind of like the opposite of the flamethrower thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's supposed to come in and give the offense a sense of peace, almost like he's one of the lowest turnover guards in the NBA historically. Um, he's a shooter. He can defend like he's hypothetically someone who could fit in on both ends. Like he's not someone who I see like really being in that, like, like there are start there are guys who are six men who are like good enough then that they end up being like the finishers. Um, and I think, I think it's been a little bit rocky for him, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think it, probably speaks to the difficulty of the role. But I think, I think overall, when you consider, you know, the fact that, you know, this is obviously an adjustment for him. He had never actually come off the bench before in his career. And he was like willingly doing that. He's just shooting the lights out of the ball too. Um, career high, career high three yeah. point percentage. And he yeah. started basically every game prior, if I'm not mistaken yeah, or something think, close to not, it. Yeah. Not so every, this not every game, but like he was, he was a starter for like the last four years, you know, yeah. Totally. Um, pretty much from the time that we knew that he was a really good NBA player, he's been a starter. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really sure what those on and off numbers could be saying, honestly. Um, yeah, 
Uh, let's move. Let's move on to uh, this. Is a guy I feel. I feel like you know you you expressed your your passion for Taj Gibson. I mm-hmm. I'm sensing an enthusiasm for Norm Powell from you. Is is that am I am I on or off about that? I mean, Powell Powell is a great example of the utility guy thing, right? Um, he's someone who can who can be a starter, but I think as a sixth man, like he's he's a good secondary creator. Um, He's like is and this is a Clippers offense that has just needed someone to get something going at any point, right? Like they're they're kind of just desperate for creation at some at some points, especially when like with the injuries that they've dealt with. But I think like the thing that I've admired most about the season that Powell has had is how much he's played this role where he has had to toggle between a lot of different things and he's trying to stay consistent within it. And I think like, you know, he, he really struggled early in the season, the first few months. And then he kind of found his way. And like in that lineup where a, you've got a whole bunch of new players, you've got Kawhi who is going to have the load management stuff going on. PG's had injuries and you've just got all of these wings and you've got Ty Lu who is just always toggling the starting lineup and, and the rotation, just trying to figure out who works. Norman Powell has been like one of the few guys that's stuck in the rotation that entire time and has over the last few months done a really, really good job of it too. Like he's, he's shooting the lights out and you know he's it's, he's he's bringing 17.2 points off the bench and the and the clippers like lead the nba in total bench points like he's a big reason for that um and like he's kind of like the like what you were talking about earlier where like guy will come in play with the starters and then kind of lead the second unit he's just i think he's perfectly suited for it yeah and, and like you said the flux has been made this even more interesting for him uh, and I, like powell um Players being in and out of the lineup, like you said, and whenever and the Clippers have a lot of these kind of guys who are like willing to seize available shots whenever that happens. You know what I mean? Like I feel like they have several of these dudes, and I think navigating that is tricky. Um, we know he's a guy who can shoot, who likes to shoot when he gets going, and they hit him when he gets going. Um, I his his bond that article that you sent, um, I think you said Andrew Grief wrote it um, about his bond with Ty Lue. Um, I think that that. The sort of trust in, uh, we'll call it God's plan, God being Ty, Ty Lue, uh, <laughs> trust that this is heading in a situation that's beneficial for him um, is probably helping. And I know they, they talked a little bit about trying to get him to work towards passing the ball more out of those like downhill cannonball rolling downhill kind of closeout drives that he's sort of known for, I feel like, because mm-hmm. he's such a powerful guard. I went and tried to like vet to see if that was true. Not acting like second spectrum is like 100% always correct to a T, but like you can see more, like a little bit of a trend per 100 possessions, like where he's getting off the ball when he drives because that driving power is so significant. Like I think when he first came into the league, maybe he was deferring a little bit. You probably you saw him more with the Raptors than than I did, but uh, he was actually um, rookie Norman Powell was just a total badass. Like yeah. he was, he was the only guy in those playoffs that felt like he had it, you know, like right. Paul Pierce always said those Raptors teams didn't have it. And like Norman Powell had it. He was not, he wasn't afraid of any shot. Fearlessness. It's like, yeah. yeah, totally. Like totally like fearlessness and like never, I think he like still exemplifies those things. And like, that's what kind of makes him good at this role as well. Like he's kind of got the perfect balance of like, well, he's trying to find that perfect balance of like, yes, you want to try to, you know, just catapult to the rim at every possible opportunity, like just like, you know, run off, a, run off like a, a screen at the free throw line and, and drive. And 
that's that's like always been the player that he's that he's been like he was never really that deferential he was like a great six man for that team too and like i honestly i think by the end of the season a lot of raptors fans felt like he should be a starter yeah i i think yeah this hits on a lot of the balance that i think is tricky about this is that like trying to find someone who has that just like unfazed confidence that is still going to perform and not poison your team and i'm i'm we're we're pointing to like good examples of this there mm-hmm. are examples throughout the league of this not working you know these are these are the good examples yeah. which speaks to how tricky it is um but yeah so he's seen some evolution there i think that he definitely i could see him winning this um we'll we'll move on to the next one Tyrese Maxey is the other one uh who has you know has moved into a role and he's somebody that we we've seen he and Tyler Hero kind of have some some interesting I know they're both UK guys and I, it's not why I bring it up but I'd like the Hero was a guy who was sort of on that precipice of it seemed like he could expand into like primary option territory potentially in the way the kind of the way that Devin Booker did over the years um I guess their their player archetypes are a little similar, but um, Maxi was somebody who was showing indication. The question for him has always been like, can he evolve into a playmaker? We knew that he could come off like, and I, and I think moving him into like a, a secondary situation, coming off of the bench, um, enabled him because the touches were just inevitably. There's there's only so many you know bites of the apple when you're in the game with like Harden and Embiid, and we talked about this earlier in the year with like Mo Tequila when he came on. Um, Moving him into the second unit, I think, you know, he willingly, I mean, he willingly took that on, right? I'm pretty positive. Yeah, he actually brought it up to Doc himself, which I think, like, I that that should give him some points as well. Uh, and they're 18-4 and four since. So, like, earlier in the season when we did that podcast, we talked about how the Sixers had all the talent in the world, but how were they actually going to find a way to maximize it? And with, like, the, the career season that Melton is having, I think it just kind of makes perfect sense for, for Maxie to be coming off the bench. And it's it's worked out. It's worked out really well, especially as of late. Like he had he had an incredible game last night. Did you watch that game last night? Uh, no, I haven't gotten to watch that one yet. But the 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 defensive part of it, I think, is mm-hmm. the thing that was that needed tweaking pretty badly. That like yeah. I, I think that like having putting Melton in there, I think, gives them like a, a switchability, uh, mm-hmm. the ball pressure, the connectivity. Uh, they just they needed that guy in there, you know, specifically. Yeah. I think, and and it, I think it serves both both purposes. You get Maxi the chance to get, do the thing, mm-hmm. which he can get white hot and give you a bunch of points, like you said. Yeah. Uh, but it also supports defensively your, your first unit, which is often why these decisions are made. You know, like yeah. I, I think you you kill you you serve two purposes with that move, and it's awesome when the player's willing to do it. And Maxi yeah. sounds like he, he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was like it's, it was interesting also to like hear him talk about it over the yeah. last few weeks. Uh, you know, when he first started it, you know, it was like, yeah, it is actually a lot different. Uh, and he actually started using a heat pack so that he wouldn't come in t- totally cold. And he was talking about how, like, you know, he entered the game. He got a quick pass from Joe, who was like, you know, shoot it. And you're, he was kind of just like, dude, I just got in the game. And that's sort of like that, that, that thing that you have to navigate of coming into the game and immediately putting on pressure and changing the game. And I think it especially applies for Maxi, who is a really quick player. And once you get him and Melton in the game at the same time, it just, it just totally shifts things for Philadelphia. They go from like being a half court team to just trying to run more. And I think Harden's been really good in that too. Like he's looking up the floor a lot more. If those two are in the game, he's looking up and seeing like, okay, who's like, or any of those guys running to the other side of the court? Like, can I hit, hit him really quick? And like, that just unlocks a new side of the Sixers offense. And it gives you a different look again, right? Right. Like if, yeah. 
if the Sixers come into a, a game and they're kind of plotting and the half court style isn't working and like, or like the defense is sort of sussed it out. Like Maxie's a great guy to have come in and like just shift things a little bit. And it's, it's working out a lot as of late, but you know, he talked about, you know, just being like, there's it's just really like interesting press conferences that he's had as of late about, you know, the mental hurdle of it. And like, just, you know, just being human, d- dealing with a, dealing with a new role. And like, also you'll like this. Um, so C- Coach Cal would text him, just say, you know, like, oh, yeah. like, like cut out all the Kentucky clutter to, out of your mind and just play. Yeah. And like, that was something that he said before, like a, a great game that he had, but like also something that he used to say to him at Kentucky. Um, so, you know. Cal's big on clutter. He talks about clutter a lot. It's one yeah. of his, yeah, tired, uh, you know. It's like uh, you, you yeah, think he, it's tired. <laughs> no, I mean it's a, Cal talks. I don't know. It, yeah. It's 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 a function of of like be, you just like tune it out. I think I tuned him out in probably like 2010. I don't think I've really listened to anything Cal said. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on that, but no, the, the clutter part of it. Yeah, I'm sure it was a big adjustment for him. Yeah, yeah, um, but it's it's worked out really well for the Sixers though, and like I think they finally found like the right offensive balance that they need, and like they can play. Uh, they play mostly a similar style, but they can play like in different variations of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we'll do an episode on the Sixers at some point because I'm really like, I'm really fascinated by how they've actually found an offensive identity. And like, we kind of had questions about that. So we won't get too, too into it. But yeah, I think, I think like Maxi fits right into like another ideal archetype that we've talked about, right? Like he's not like a Manu Ginobili level talent, but he's definitely starting caliber and he was in the midst, like he's dealt with injuries this season, but for the most part, his career since he's gone to the NBA has been on the up and like his, his averages, like he basically doubled them this season. And it was kind of the, like, if you were look to look at it from like an individual perspective, you'd want to continue to start, like you'd want to keep building on it, but he kind of like was willing to undercut that. And his averages are down since that. Cause he is playing less minutes, but he's just kind of been totally happy to, to be in this position. And the Sixers are also like a legitimate championship threat that, can fine tune their offense as a result. So yeah, like I give them a ton of props for that. Yeah. So coming out of this discussion, kind of talking about these candidates, um, do you want to pick one? Do you want to go? Do you uh, do you want to make a prediction? I don't. I mean, I don't. I, Maxi's shift in the, this late in the season, I think, might be something that might work against him. If he had done this, like you know, if this had been a moment one thing, I don't know, mm-hmm. would that make a difference? What do you think? So that's what I was going to say. Like right now, he's like the third most likely player to win. Like it's Brogdon, then Powell, then Maxi. And the rules that, you know, you have to start, you have to come off the bench more games than you start. He's actually, he's three games away from having the same amount of starts as, as coming off the bench. So he's not far off from that. It's not a lot of games, but I think like if, if this continues for the entire season, I really, I want to go with Maxi just because of, the level of impact, like the the different style that he brings, like all the things that we just talked about, I, I feel like it's completely in the spirit of the award. And I just, I, I love it. I want to reward it. So that's what I'm going to go with. What do you got? That would be the highest starting percentage, I think, ever potentially. I mean, it'd be really, 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 really high. I, th- I saw something where they were saying like Lamar Odom was like in the high 40s when he won um, percentage wise. I like it. I like it too. Um, I would be for it if 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 they you know if that didn't play too much into like the negative side of him potentially winning it for for the voters, um, especially on something that works. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily think that you need to reward every 
every award with, with like a situation that works. But in this in this situation, I do I do like that. I would I would like it if Maxi won it. And I mean, I guess depending on what the Clippers do, can kind of make, you know affect how we feel. Um, but we, I feel like we both are softer on like Brogdon potentially winning the award. It seems like we're kind of in lockstep on that, right? A little. I don't know. I feel like he's kind of fallen into this role where it's like natural for him to be the sixth man. Like he's mm-hmm. like I want Derek White as the starter, and like while Derek White can't necessarily do the things that Brogdon can do, it just feels a little weird. Also, I don't know. Like and this is unfair. Like this is like I don't want to be punitive about this, but at the same time, like he came he joined the Celtics and he joined as a six man. There's almost like the narrative part kind of figures into me, into it for <laughs> me. Like the poetry of someone saying here, I will relinquish my starting spot. Oh, and, you and like this, the you like the self-sacrificial yeah. narrative. Okay. That's bit, part of yeah. your criteria. I see that. I like that. Also, isn't Grant Williams their six man? That's what the argument I was making to, to, to you. I mean, he's, but, well, I think yeah. that's the case for a lot of teams that like have six men of the year candidate. Like you could kind of pick, like it wasn't like there was the, the Clippers, like coach Rez, year and like there's there's a deep teams just kind of naturally produce the sense that there are a lot of guys that could be six men like I think the like in like if things went a little bit different for, for the Clippers like they would probably have that argument too yeah yeah well anyway I think we got to the bottom of this anything else you want to plug or talk about before we get out of here uh no I'm I'm pretty much good I'm pretty much good Good. Um, Good. I would just be very curious how everybody feels about how you dealt with that waitress situation. <laughs> Hornet, like you didn't weigh in. Am I a sicko? What do you think? I don't. I don't think so, man. Like I don't think that reaches sicko level. I'm with Sirit. You know, it's more. It's more like needly. You know, it's like more like yeah. stirring the drink a little bit. You know, I, I wouldn't call you a sicko because of that. I'm a needler. I'm not gonna act like I'm not. I, I like to. You know, I don't know. It, it's you all in good fun though. I'm not yeah. mean spirited about it. I just. Uh, I like to cut up with people. So anyway, uh, it was good to good to see you. Good to catch back up again after such a fun uh, All Star Weekend. Excited to talk more about these awards with you folks. Let us know who you think the Sixth Man of the Year award, and and then talk to us about your philosophy. Hit me up on Twitter, um, and hit Sear it up. Blow up her mentions with a lot of uh, you know just uh, shit stirring kind of stuff. All right, so Sear uh, <laughs> it is good to see you. I'll uh, I'll catch you catch you next time. <laughs>